Uh, good morning. <laughs> How are we doing today? How are we doing on this brisk winter morning? Are we all doing all right? Yeah? Um, I, so I have to confess, I'm pretty tired this morning. Uh, I was um, up really late praying over every inning of the Philadelphia Phillies game, right? And they won, right? That's sweet, right? We can applaud for that. <clears throat> I'm super excited about that. Um, regardless of how I feel, it's so good to be back here once again on stage to share it with you all. Um, this is going to be my last sermon for a little while because in about four or five weeks, my wife and I will be welcoming twins to the world. And so we're so excited. We're so excited, a little overwhelmed, but um, y'all have been super, super kind to us, and people have been praying over these girls, and we're just so thrilled to welcome them into the world, and once they're here, we'll be sure to share pictures um, with you all, Um, but I'm super eager for today's scripture that we get to go through, um, because Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's disclosing God's big plan for the world. And we see it kind of in the thesis of the book um, where he's saying God's bringing heaven back to earth. All of the mess in the earth will be gone and God's going to bring it back to earth. Um, But it's also an invitation. He's inviting us not to be spectators, but to be participants in this Process. He's inviting us not to sit on the sidelines and watch it unfold. But Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and I think he's writing to the Christian Life Center and every church in the world to be participants in what God is doing, bringing heaven to earth, right? For example, um, last week we went to a middle school retreat. We brought about 10 middle schoolers to this camp. There was a couple hundred students there. And at the retreat, and, and Nadine organized that. She's awesome. She's doing such great work with the middle school ministry, by the way. Um, but we were at this retreat, first retreat since COVID. And at the retreat, they have this massive swing, right? And I have a picture of it right here. It's you, you sit in it and you kind of get hoisted up. And then the person in the seat pulls like the lever and you kind of free fall, right? And so at the retreat, I was totally content with being a spectator, right? I'm like, looks kind of high. It looks really great from down here. I don't have to be a part of that, right? And so I was just watching group after group go on the swing, right? But then that moment came when one of our own students was like, hey, Christian, do you want to go on the swing with me? And I feel like it's a law in youth ministry. You're not allowed to say no, right? But actually, I was so honored. I was so honored to ride the swing with this student, right? But let me tell you what, the experience from spectating to participating was wildly different. It was totally different. In fact, we have a little video that we're going to show you of what this was like. (laughs) All right. I'm going to hold real tight to it. You let us know, Kenny, okay? It's higher than I thought. Hashtag CLC number one. Yep. I don't know if you noticed it in my face. It went from like fear to like joy, right? Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus saying, I don't want you to be spectators, but I want you to be participants. Because when we experience the work that God is doing, and when we participate in that, it changes everything in our lives. And so this passage that he's working through today is an invitation 
uh, to not be spectators. Don't sit on the sidelines. Get involved. Figure out what it looks like for you to participate in God's work of bringing heaven to earth. Might be a little scary at first, but my goodness, it is far better than being spectators, right? And so we've been in this series on the book of Ephesians. where God, we kind of see in chapter one, Bob covered this, chapter one, verse 10, where we see God, uh, he's writing the reason of this book is to help people understand that God is trying to bring heaven to earth, bring all things in unity under Christ, right? And he's trying to invite us into that. That is the ultimate plan. And so in today's passage, in chapter two, what Paul is doing, he's he's disclosing the steps at which God's gonna bring heaven to earth, right? He's disclosing this is what it's gonna look like. This is the process, and this is how you can get involved in that. And so in chapter two today, the first thing, the first thing that God preoccupies himself with when he's bringing heaven to earth is reconciling all people back to himself to redeeming and restoring every single person back to himself. That is the primary starting process to bring heaven to earth. And so Paul is sharing the the different dimensions of God's eternal purpose with the church in Ephesus and with us today so that we would not be spectators, no, but that we would be participants. And so church, as we work through this passage today, I invite you and I challenge you to figure out what does it look like for me not to be a spectator? What does it look like for me to participate in God bringing heaven to earth and God redeeming and restoring my soul? That's the question I want to wrestle with you guys for today. And this is a passage that should change absolutely everything, right? If we actually sit with this passage and understand what it's trying to get at, it should change our outlook on life. Everything should look differently when we look at it through the lens of the gospel. It changes the way that we see our role in our family. It changes the way we see our role in our workplace, our role as brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, whatever it is. This passage should change that. And so if we're not walking out of here with a new understanding or a refined understanding of what God is doing, I would question whether we got what Paul was saying. And so I want to challenge you guys, really lean in today. And so y'all, re- y'all ready to jump in? We, we okay? Okay. Um, let me pray for us real quick as we get started. God, you're so gracious. As we just sang a moment ago, you are so, so good. Even when life just stinks, when life's crazy and overwhelming, when we are experiencing unexpected loss, when we are grieving We still trust and declare, and that's what faith is, trusting and declaring despite the circumstances that you are good. And so God, we pray that as we work through your word today, may these not be my words, may they be your words. Um, Help challenge us, figure out where in our lives that we can participate in what it is that you're doing. And so we just pray that your spirit would fall in this place and that we would receive your word warmly this morning. We pray these things in your name, amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. We're starting in verse 1. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not exciting to read at all, is it, right? Uh, have, have you, you've, some of you may have experienced getting the phone call you never wanted to get, right? Um, 
I remember in October 2017, five years ago, I was flying out of Memphis, or sorry, flying out of Dallas to Memphis, which is where I lived at the time. I was in a conference, and I was in the terminal of the airport. Just got Buffalo Wild Wings, so things were great. Um, in the terminal of the airport, and I got a phone call from my mom to share with me, it was from my dad, that my dad had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer, which for his cancer was the highest stage, right? And I remember being in the airport, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I started weeping over my Buffalo Wild Wings. Like it was, it was, I was, someone would have looked at me and been really confused, but I was like weeping in the airport. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to, he's sharing some really difficult news that should in some ways cause us to grieve. Paul is trying to disclose some bad news about the state of the world, right? If God is renovating all things, if God is bringing heaven to earth and restoring all the mess and the brokenness that we've made of this place, if God's doing that, Paul is trying to share the pre-renovation state of all things, including us, and it's not good. It's not a good state to be in. So he says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. In the reference uh, to the state of all humans, he says, you are dead. Your soul has died. It's not dying. It's not sick, but it is passed away. Like it is gone. And usually when something dies, there's no hope for it, right? You can't resuscitate things that are dead, right? And so Paul is not trying to be hyperbolic here. He's trying to say the way that things are is everything is dead. The pre-renovation state of what God is doing. And it is a grim reality. It should hit us like a terrible phone call, like a bag of bricks, whatever it might be, right? And let's be honest, like it's kind of weird to talk about, uh, it's weird to comprehend this idea of our souls being dead, right? It's not something that you talk about often, like you don't go to your workplace, and you're like, hey boss, how's your soul doing today, right? You don't talk with your family over dinner, like what's the state of your soul this evening, right? Not conversations that we often have, right? And so let's try and figure out what exactly is Paul getting at when he says, you are dead, right? Now while our bodies as Christians, and you know, we all believe that we we're more than just a body, right? We have this body, uh, and the soul is kind of the center of who we are. It is, uh, it is the, the seat of decision-making in our life. It's the very portion of us that lasts well beyond our bodies, right? This is kind of a, a theological framework for what we believe the soul is, right? And it is corrupt, and it is broken enough and sick uh, that it is dead without redemption, and we don't grieve the loss of a, a soul the same way we do death, right? When, when someone physically dies, we have a, a funeral service, but when people are maybe spiritually or their soul is considered bankrupt, we don't have a service to grieve over that, right? And so it's kind of hard to figure out what is Paul getting at here because he's kind of hitting on something that especially in 21st century America, we just don't talk about that often, right? And so he's saying your soul is dead, Think of it this way. I don't know how many of you have seen the show, The Walking Dead, right? Uh, this is the closest metaphor I can get um, without confusing people. Um, the Walking Dead, you see like those zombies just kind of walking around, right? And, uh, and, and they're physically alive, they're moving. However, the original person is no longer there, right? Every other part of that person has died. They're not present. So what Paul's trying to get at is like, hey, our souls are, are in really bad shape the pre-renovation state of the world, we're not doing great. Yeah, we might be alive, walking about, but our souls have died. He's almost like handing us a death certificate and saying, hey, this is not good, right? And so that's a pretty bold thing to say, right? 
You never want someone like walking up to you and saying like, your soul's dead, right? That's a pretty aggressive thing to say. And so we have to ask the question, why is Paul saying this to the church in Ephesus? And why does he even say this to us today? And he says, uh, there's three reasons uh, for this being the case. There's three things that contribute to our depravity, our brokenness, right? And he says the first thing is the Satan, is the Hebrew word. It's the prince of the power of the air. The Satan is an is a English translation for the Hebrew word adversary. And so there's a spirit of evil that seeks to deface God's beautiful creation and purposes for us, right? There's an there's a evil spirit that seeks to unwind everything that started in the Garden of Eden and everything today. It tries to undo the beauty of what God is trying to do, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is the world, Right? The, the environment is plagued by broken and selfish inclinations that we call sin. Especially in the church in Ephesus, that was a huge trading city. And so a lot of people were coming through, so much so that, you know, they're bringing different religious traditions to this place. And they even established temples to these other gods, right? And so... Paul's saying the world you guys are living in, the, the Ephesians, is corrupt. The world is just not a great influence. It is filled with people who are seeking things just for themselves, filled with people who are selfish and broken, right? And that begins to kind of infiltrate and influence us. And we have this in America today. Every country has things that we worship, right? Whether it's money, fame, power, or whatever it is, we all are like Ephesus now. We have a lot of things that can kind of influence us. And then the third thing that he references is our own fallenness. We are prone to live in ways that unwind and inhibit our ability to be fully human in the way that God's called us to, right? We live in ways that, that undo what God has in store for our life. We settle, right? We are broken. We're broken not in just the things that we do, but even the things that we leave undone, right? We could create harm, but then we could not speak up when there is harm, right? We're just so broken through and through, right? And so our subscribing to any of these things results in sin, which is kind of like a word churches use to describe kind of the state of where we're at. And sin basically means missing the mark. You've heard this before. It's an archery term, and when you miss it, that is sin, right? I've heard it said that sin is our making ourselves God, right? We don't want anything to do with God, so we worship uh, everything that we want to do. And let's be honest, we're not really good at doing that, right? Um, sin, I've heard it said this way, sin is kind of our are just giving the finger to God and saying, I'm not doing anything that's part of your plan. I would rather be my own God, right? And so that's what sin is, right? And Paul is trying to convey that we've subscribed to a way of being that is incomplete, it is inhumane, and incompatible with the way of Jesus, the way of a full life. It's not an exciting passage, is it, Right? And we've seen great evidence for this. Well, and you, you could be a Christian, or you don't even have to be a Christian to see the evidence of the broken world that we live in, right? Earlier this week, there was a, a mass shooting in Thailand in a, in, a, in a preschool, right? We have an ongoing war in Ukraine where people are dying because some people are interested in power and control, right? 
We, uh, we see this in even our own landscape, and we've talked about this last few weeks, like the, the political culture of this country where we see people just jockeying for power on both sides when their constituents have real needs, right? All of us have real needs, and so we live in a broken, very self-inclined world, and none of us, you know, we don't look at that and say, oh, this is awesome at all, right? Paul's trying to highlight the state of the way things are. We live in a world that a child or a person could die of hunger or malnutrition when we definitely have enough resources to sustain everybody, right? We see sin. Sin is the result of undoing God's good creation, right? And God bringing heaven to earth is trying to fix that. Sin is the undoing of the Garden of Eden where we can coexist with each other in perfect harmony and coexist with God and sin is the unraveling of that. And so God is trying to reverse it, bring heaven to earth. And guess what? He wants us to be participants. Remember, God's making all things new, including us. And notice, it never says God is making new things. No, he takes old things and makes them new. God is making all things new. He's not necessarily making new things. So he's making us new. And sin, doing our own thing, is our opting out of this renovation and restorative plan. And this sin leads to death, right? And so as a result, Paul writes, we are children of wrath. Sounds kind of like an insult, right? <laughs> like you're a child of wrath. I'm sure none of you would describe your children as children of wrath, right? It's this idea that they incur a wrath upon themselves, your frustration. So Paul isn't trying to call us names, but he's trying to just be honest about the way that things are. And when I say this word wrath, I'm sure there's a lot of ideas that come to mind of what God's wrath is like. And unfortunately, sometimes maybe we project our own experiences onto God and we we think God should not be wrathful, right? But if we actually dive into what Paul's trying to get at, it brings great clarity, so much so that we can be, can be like, yeah, I think I think I identify with that, right? And so, and so, let me bring clarity to wrath real quick. It's a matter of justice, making things right. That's all that justice is. It's making what is wrong right again. Just, and God is making all things right again as they should be because God is just, right? We all would want a just God, right? And so when we perpetually violate and deviate from this life-giving way of living, as any loving parent might respond, God gets upset. He gets angry. And since we often violate what God has for us, God has wrath. But his anger is not swift, and it isn't flippant, and reckless. The Greek word for wrath actually comes from the verb orago, which means to team or to swell, meaning it's not impulsive. It's something that kind of builds up over time. As a parent, you might have experienced this where you're like kind of biting the tongue and you see your kid doing that thing and then they keep doing it and they keep doing it and they keep doing it, right? And then you experience this righteous anger, this frustration at them that they would not subscribe to a way of living that is wonderful, right? It's a settled indignation. God's wrath is not capricious. It's not unpredictable or spiteful. It's fixed on making things right again. And I'm sure anyone who's abandoned a parent has experienced that. When, when you have hopes 
for your, your, your kid that they might thrive and maybe we see them making decisions that aren't for their betterment or their growth, right? So as a parent, you get angry at the entanglements of sin and brokenness, right? And so that's what God as a loving parent is experiencing um, and that's why we are called like children of wrath. And so our Heavenly Father is passionately and very much appropriately angry. He's upset that his children might be experiencing the sin that so easily unravels everything that he's invited us to, right? And aren't we, I mean, we're the exact same way. I've confessed from the stage many times my sin in road rage, <laughs> um, right? Whenever we're driving, Usually we get angry because things did not happen as they should, right? I've been, uh, there's been unjust actions taken against me when that guy cut me off. And so I have a righteous rage. I don't know if I'm trying to convince myself that it's okay, um, but I'm sure my wife will correct me there. Um, but we do have this rage because things are not the way they're supposed to be. We all want that justice. But the problem is, is we never want it for ourselves. We always want it for someone else, Right? If I was justly treated for the way that I am, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be very good, right? And so we all want justice for everybody else except us. But Paul is trying to put us on level playing ground here and say we are all so broken, okay? What Paul is saying is that as a result of our brokenness and depravity, no one is, in, in, uh, no one is immune. We are all naturally children of wrath. We've all missed the mark. We've walked in brokenness. We've subscribed to a way of living and being that's totally missed the mark of what God has set out for us. Yet, if you look closely in this diagnosis that he's making, everything he's saying is in past tense. He's saying you were dead in your trespass. You did walk in the way of sin. You did do this, right? And so something's happening here that if we pay close attention, it changes everything, right? And I want us to hear this, church. God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly loving and overflowing with compassion and kindness because that is who he is. And so if we continue on in this passage, we see that come out in Paul's writing in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." We were dead, just spiritually bankrupt, and it was self-inflicted. Yet, remember, remember, God's plan is to bring heaven to earth. And what's the first step of this process but to redeem and restore all people back to himself? And so, yes, he's a God of justice, but my goodness, he is a God of compassion and mercy, right? We see in verse four, God is rich in mercy. That's who he is. It's a character attribute of who God is, right? And if you're rich in something, if you have an abundance of it, what do you do with it? You give it away. And so God's so rich and abundant in mercy, he wants to give it to his kids and he gives it away abundantly. Verse five, Paul reminds them again, 
even if we were dead in our trespass. He didn't want them to forget that part. Like, God's merciful, but even when you were dead in your sin, even when you wanted nothing to do with God, even in the moment you were flipping God off and trying to do your own plan, even in that moment, God is offering you the gift gift of mercy and compassion, right? This should, this is different than anything we've experienced on this earth. We should, this should kind of light up a light bulb in our head for what God is doing here, right? This is different and distinct. And he reminds them, even when you were dead, he offered this gift of mercy. God has great compassion, and he calls us beloved and offers us the gift of mercy and grace. And he offers this to every person, every community, everyone, right? I think it's always important to distinguish between mercy and grace. We hear these words a lot. Mercy is our not getting what we deserve, right? It's kind of like in grade school, if someone was holding your arm behind your back, you say, uncle, uncle, or like mercy, right? Uh, even though that was kind of a bullying situation, you didn't deserve it. But anyway, that's where that metaphor falls short. Um, Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which if he's a just God, we probably deserve wrath. We've all made decisions that were very selfish, and we've created pain, and we've participated in the undoing of God's beautiful creation, right? And grace is us getting a gift that we don't deserve, right? It's It's a gift that we couldn't deserve, even if we tried. Right? And so God has mercy. He does not give us what we do deserve, right? Which is crazy. In the court system, that would be a problem if we did not get what we deserved. But then he also gives us the gift of grace and forgiveness and love and compassion because this is who he is, right? And there's verse six. It says, not only are we raised up with Christ through the work that Christ has done for us, not only are we raised up with Christ, but we've actually, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Which you're like, Christian, I'm in the sanctuary right now. I'm not seated with Jesus. Like, what are you saying? Uh, The idea here is that we've been raised up not only in life, right? God gives life to our souls and our spirits, but he's raised us up with him, meaning we have authority with him over sin and death right? We have authority. We are no longer bound to walk, which is a participation word. We're no longer bound to walk in the ways of sin and brokenness. We're no longer enslaved to these things that hold us down, but rather we are empowered and we have power over the prince of the air, over Satan, over the Satan, right? And we are invited and empowered to walk in that power. We go from this moment where he's giving us our death certificate and he's saying you are alive not only are you alive you have power over the things that once held you down right this is clicking for us church that is a huge huge thing right God is bringing heaven to earth and he's making all things new and he is first and foremost concerned with reconciling individuals to himself that we might experience life with him as it should be right There's a scene from a a musical that I think so beautifully captures uh, what Paul's writing about here. And if you've seen the the musical Les Mis, you you might know what I'm talking about. There's there's this man named Jean Valjean. And uh, he was a criminal, and he was trying to re-enter society. But it was normal for criminals trying to re-enter society to be shunned. And so everybody ignored him. Everyone kicked him to the curb. He had a hard time finding food. He had a hard time finding work. No one wanted to hire him, right? Um, Except this one bishop who welcomes him in. 
and shows them incredible hospitality and grace. And so if you know the musical, it's a a musical, so they sing some parts of it. And we'll make sure we turn the volume up so you can hear it. But I invite you to lean in and put yourself in Jean Valjean's shoes. If Paul's writing this and saying we were dead in our trespasses, we see that Jean Valjean is, but watch how the bishop responds. And I think it represents how Jesus embraces us. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and play that clip. Hey! Come and suffer, you are weary. And the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today. Bless our dear sister and our honored guest. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs by the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness I have saved your soul for I love that clip. I think it so beautifully captures 
what God is trying to do for us. In another version of the same scene, uh, this is what the bishop says. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. A ransom from fear and hatred. And now, I give you back to God. Right? Isn't that what we see Jesus doing? Because if you notice, Jean Valjean was dead in his trespasses. He did not come back to the bishop apologizing. He was not contrite. He wasn't saying, I stole the silver, it's yours. No, he made up a lie to protect himself. How often do we do that, right? Yet the bishop in that moment could have been perfectly just. And it would have been perfectly just to send Jean Valjean back to prison. However, that's not what we see. We see a bishop, and hopefully this helps us understand that we have a God who, yes, is perfectly just, but is also perfectly compassionate. He's perfectly kind and wants to give us grace and mercy, right? God meets us all regardless of where we're at. And every person that we have in our mind that we actually think does not deserve the grace of God, God gives them that grace too. God gives them that mercy too. Every community, every individual, regardless of everything, God gives that grace so we could build heaven on earth so that we can undo the grip that hell has on earth, right? Isn't that something we want to participate in? We don't want to be spectators in that, right? It is a love that undoes the grip that hell has on our hearts. And the way that I think of it is Jesus is literally loving the hell right out of us, right? He's loving us so much that it should, if we receive it, it should begin to transform us, the way we think, the way we view the world, the way we participate in anything, right? If we receive this gift, it just has that effect where it transforms us. George Whitfield was a well-known theologian and preacher. In the 1700s, he was preaching a sermon around the gospel when a man was sitting in the congregation, congregation and his pocket was lined with rocks and he was planning to kill George Whitfield after the sermon. And so the sermon ends and this man walks up to George Whitfield and says these words, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. This good news is so profound that it can soften even the most callous of hearts. With Christ, because of the work that Christ has done is what we believe, right? This is why we gather every week and sing. We are made spiritually alive with a new purpose, a new calling, and an abundant hope. Now we might ask the question, like, why would God do this? Like, why would the bishop do that to Jean Valjean? Why would God look on me with favor? Why is God doing this, right? And I think Paul offers a suggestion in verse 7. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God just wants his children to know that we are Loved, right? And there's no expectation. There's no strings attached. There's no gotcha moment, right? God wants to love us so much that we are transformed. We bring heaven to earth and we can then coexist with God forever, right? That's God's vision. And when we sin, it is just us saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. And so in verse 7, Paul's disclosing the reason why God's doing this is that you're his kids and he loves you and he wants to lavish his grace on you forever. What a beautiful picture, right? 
It's this image that we were returning to the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect. We existed in perfect harmony with our Creator, and guess what was absent? Death, sin, brokenness, selfishness, right? All of those things did not exist, and so it's about bringing heaven back to earth. That's the image that we get in Scripture, so we could exist in that perfect harmony again. And Paul wraps up his line of thought, starting with verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We live in a pretty complicated world where... I think our culture does this, and I'm guilty of participating in this way too, where we base our value on what we can do, how we can perform, what we, you know, what check boxes of society we can check off, right? And a lot of times we base our value on just how well or poorly we perform, right? And so we've almost been conditioned to think that if we work hard enough, we will be seen as loved and valued, right? Like, for example, I mean, we have job reviews, which they're not a bad thing. It's a tool, but job reviews can help us, you know, our our value in this space is dependent on how well we perform, right? For students, I know a lot of y'all are up there. How you doing? Hey. Um, For students, it's, it's grades, right? You are graded on how well you can recite some information or knowledge, right? Um, we may base our value as parents on how well-behaved or how successful our kids are, right? And if they don't kind of reach the bar that we want, we then start to think, I failed as a parent, right? Sometimes I va- base my value as a teacher on how well the sermons go. And if it doesn't go as well as, as I think, I start to think, man, I don't know if I'm cracked up for this, right? Uh, maybe if we could accumulate a lot of stuff, people would think we are hardworking and successful. If I roll in with a really nice car, have a really nice house, right? Maybe if we go to church, people will think that we are actually better than we are. I'm guilty of that, right? If we, I can curate a highlight reel on social media and show people how perfect my life is, maybe they will think I'm doing something right. Maybe they might like me. There's a researcher and an author, her name is Brene Brown, and she writes this. When we struggle to believe in our worthiness, we hustle for it, right? When we struggle to believe our value and our worthiness, we start to work really hard for it. And this same practice definitely impacts us and how we think about God, right? If I can make up for all the ways that I've sinned, maybe God will love me more. If I attend church more, God would look favorably on me and my family, If I give X amount of dollars to the church, maybe God will forgive me. That could be my payment for my past, right? If I pray and read the Bible, maybe God will love me more. If I can get all my stuff together, maybe I'll have a seat at the table, right? We think that way. I think that way. What Paul is saying here is that's nonsense. That is hogwash, right? That is ridiculous. No one can boast. No one can work for it. There's nothing under the sun that we can do to earn this gift. Salvation is not a reward. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift. That's grace. It's a gift that we cannot earn, right? It's one that's so extravagant, so costly, so precious that no one could earn it or work for it. In every respect, it is not your doing. That's what Paul's trying to get out here. 
but rather it is a gift given to you free of charge because you are the beloved of God. You are a child of God that he loves. And all we can do is just receive that gift. Are we paying attention? Is this good, right? Is this good news? It should be good news, right? We've had our death certificate handed to us saying there's absolutely no hope. There's nothing you can do beyond redemption. We cannot do anything to earn it. But God is reconciling us back to himself for the purpose of bringing hell to earth and for ruining hell's plans, right? This should change everything. It should change how we see our role in our family and our workplace. It should bring us joy. Like even when life stinks, we'd say, but the, the gift of grace has not been taken from me right? And the best is yet to come. God is still bringing heaven to earth, and I may not see it now, but I know one day he'll bring it to fruition, right? This should naturally compel us out of great joy to participate. If we're actually hearing this, if, if it's settling on our hearts, which I pray that God is making this abundantly clear to all of us, if it's settling on our hearts, we can't help but participate. We can't help but get on that swing, even if it's tall and scary, right? We can't help but engage, Martin Luther says, it talks about faith and how it invites us to respond, and this is what he says. Faith, however, is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different men and women, in heart and spirit and in mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, and it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. When we experience this gift of compassion, when we are dead in our trespass, it should naturally start to stir something us stir something up in us that invites us to live differently and be participates in bringing heaven to earth. Because I've participated in bringing hell to earth before. Like how I treat people and, um, and ruining relationships. A careless word, right? And we're all guilty of that. We, we walked in the trespasses of our brokenness. God's inviting us to something different. And so then Paul finishes with the invitation to Ephesus in verse 10. It says, for we, notice the communal element, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice at the beginning of the passage, it said, we all walked in our brokenness and trespasses. Well, God is inviting us to walk in a new way, not to bring about hell, but to bring about heaven, to bring about life, and to share this good news with all, right? And I love this. He says, you know, not only are we beloved, his beloved children, but we're his workmanship, which if you know, is so cool. If you know the Greek, like it, it makes it all the more profound. The Greek word is the same word for poetry. It's poema. We are verbal artistry. We are Artwork. Not only are we redeemed and, stay, and, and saved, but we are of high value. Think of, uh, you know, think of a movie or a beautiful script or a song or a statue, like a beautiful piece of artwork, and that's what God calls us. We went from being spiritually bankrupt to being artwork. Isn't that wild, right? There's a really cool nonprofit organization in, um, in Oregon, and I think they capture this perfectly. What they do is they take trash out of the ocean and they turn it into artwork. And this is it. They take our garbage that is in the ocean, they gather it up, 
and they build beautiful artwork, and then they actually create exhibits where people can come see this artwork, and they do charge a fee for people to do that because then they take that money and they fund the project to clean the oceans. How cool is that, right? What God is doing is he's taking things that are dead and bringing them back to life. We are the artwork. We are God's workmanship. Isn't that wild, right? They're taking that which is absolutely no value, and they're bringing it to life, right? Isn't that what God's doing with us? We are his workmanship, and we have the work of partaking with Jesus and reclaiming and bringing redemption and restoration to the mess of this world. And what does art do? It, it points to the artist, right? It makes the artist famous. Jesus and the source of, we're pointing to Jesus and the source of this new life that we've experienced. We were the garbage floating in the ocean, right? Going with the wind and the waves. Yet God's pulled us out and turned us into something beautiful. Now we have the opportunity to live with new purpose and point to the artist and say, this is the reason why my life is like this. I know things aren't going great all the time, but hey, I'm not where I once was, right? That's what God is doing. This is good news. This should grip our hearts and transform us in some way, church, right? As I wanted to wrap up, and I'll, um, I'll invite the band up, I wanted to mention that this was a difficult sermon, a sermon to prepare. Um, not because I feel like I have baby brain right now and I'm just like trying to get everything together. Um, but I think it's a difficult sermon because this is not the first time this sermon's been preached from the stage. This idea of good news and what God is doing is something we often revisit. You guys know it, right? But the problem is, is we got to figure out, are we going to participate or not? Because we we're going to give the same kind of sermon so many times in the next year where you can hear about the goodness of God, but that's not really the big question on the table right now. The question is, are we going to be spectators or participants in this? How are we going to engage, right? And for some of us in here, this might be maybe the first time you're hearing it. It might be your first time here. We're so glad you're here. We're here because we believe Jesus is a really awesome risen king, and he has impacted our lives in a way that is just, just incredible, right? That's why we're here. But for some of us, man, we've been hearing these sermons forever, and we're still sitting on the sidelines watching what God's doing. We might even ask the question, like, why have I not experienced God in this way, right? Maybe it's because we've just been spectating for too long. And so I want to challenge this church. I want to challenge everybody. How are we going to participate in this invitation? How are we going to do, how are we going to, what are we going to do about this good news, right? Like the, the swing at the middle school retreat, it was scary, a little overwhelming, didn't realize it was that high, but my goodness, what, what fears hold us back? What hesitations do we have? Are we going to be spectators or participants? Because every week, we sure sing about this new life. We pray about this new life. We study this new life, but that does not mean we are walking in new life. And so I want to challenge you, church, to consider what it might look like for you to participate in this. If during this last song you need to come up and pray, like, do it. We're actually, after the, the song, we're going to have prayers come, uh, come up that you could pray with. But what are we going to do about this good news? And I hope, I hope that like Jean Valjean and like the trash in the ocean, that we would experience life anew and participate with what God is doing. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we're going to sing together. Um, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Oh, my goodness. We are so grateful that we are, we are dead in our trespasses. There's no hope. There's nothing that we could do about it, yet you love us immensely, and there's nothing we could do about that. We can't earn it. 
Uh, we can't lose it. And so God, we pray um, as we sing the song, as we go from this place, that you would challenge us, that you would um, remind us of how highly you think of us, and that we wouldn't settle for anything less, that we wouldn't settle for the sidelines and spectate, but that God, you'd invite us into the mix, and that we would participate in bringing heaven to earth, so that all can see and experience your goodness and your love. So God, thank you for loving us. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing this last song together.
I love that chorus. It's your breath in my lungs. You're the reason why I'm alive. You're the reason, reason why I have hope. So what will we do? We'll just praise you. And we'll invite others along, right? And so um, we're going to have people, the, the people praying can come up. Uh, we're going to have people, if you need prayer, if you need to reflect on anything, if whatever it might be, like this is your space. Um, but the hope is that we could receive this news and we could celebrate this news and we could bring others along, right? And that we cannot just watch for God's Zoom, but that we can participate. And so I invite you in the grace, in the mercy, in the justness, and in the compassion of God to go from this place as we participate in bringing heaven to earth. Amen? Amen. 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 We love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. No! Oh.